Hi, I'm Paul Shari, Senior Fellow and Director of the Technology and National Security Program here at the Center for New American Security. And I'm joined today by two wonderful guests and thought leaders in artificial intelligence and national security. Bob Work, former Deputy Secretary of Defense and now Senior Counselor for Defense here at CNAS. And Amir Hussein, founder and CEO of Spark Cognition, an AI company and author of The Sentient Machine. Welcome, Bob and Amir. Thanks, Paul. Great to be here. Great to be here, Paul. Thank you. So, um, Bob, Amir, uh, Andrew Moore from Carnegie Mellon, and a number of other thought leaders in the space have just launched with us here at CNES a new task force on artificial intelligence and national security. Let's start with that. Um, why do you, each of you think this is such a critical thing that we need to create sort of a task force focus around this? Uh, Bob, why don't you go first? Well, as the deputy secretary, I've been thinking uh, when I was the deputy secretary from uh, 2014 through 2017, how AI was changing the way warfare uh, uh, could be fought in the future was on my mind and on the mind of all the senior leaders of the Department of Defense. So I'm very anxious to be part of a task force that looks at this a little bit more broadly, not just through the lens of this Department of Defense, but through the lens of national security of the United States and how should the United States approach AI in a responsible manner that will help both our economy in medical and transportation and finance. But the focus of this task force, of course, is on what are its national security implications. And Paul, in my view, you know, we live in the AI century. I think AI is going to be critical to aspects of economy, military, geostrategy, just across the board. Um, and so uh, I think having a clear focus and identifying the issues that we can then tackle, uh, many of these issues lie at the nexus of technology and policy. And I think a forum like this gives us the expertise uh, the diverse expertise, actually, from various different places to have an honest discussion and to be able to suggest solutions that may not come from elsewhere. And in my view, we don't have much time to uh, synthesize a coherent national strategy. Amira, much of the innovation in AI is coming from uh, innovative companies like Spark Cognition, smaller, uh, uh, more agile, fast-moving companies, that can be a little bit of a challenge for DOD and the acquisition system um, that's a little bit slower and more ponderous. I wonder if you could chat a little bit about some of the unique challenges of working with the defense sector um, as relative to, to other sectors, since your company does both. Absolutely. I mean, the main issues are really around the acquisition process. Uh, see, the the fact of the matter is that artificial intelligence is, yes, a digital technology, but a digital technology that's really progressing at an amazing uh, rate of speed. And you have, you know, revolutions happening every two months. So if you're dealing with organizations that have acquisition cycles on the order of five and seven years, uh, the reality is that you've gone through 30, 40 generations of technology between your initiation of the conversation and some kind of a conclusion. Not to say that most startups don't ha have the wherewithal to just sit on the sidelines for five, seven years and just wait around for that contract, uh, whether or not it comes. So I think uh, rapid acquisition and some sort of innovation startup engagement process that can rapidly identify technologies and with meaningful sums, not 
F-35 budget level sums, but meaningful sums can start to fund critical research, innovative research from these companies. The other aspect is, of course, you have to comply with a lot of things. So you start a new company, unless you're coming from a background where you're already security cleared and your co-founders, your chief engineer, all the people that will be working on the project are all security cleared, then you have to go through security clearances. And as you know, that process uh, can also be anywhere from a year to two years, depending on your travel history and things like that. So I think while I am no background check slash security expert, if this is an issue which disallows um, innovators and entrepreneurs from working on a critical piece of technology for, say, a year and a half or two years before the clearance comes in, perhaps there are ways in which this can be handled, maybe by paying a larger fee, the process can be accelerated. Maybe there is some part of this process that a waiver could be implemented for, whatever the fix is, I'm not sure. But these are the kinds of challenges that we've faced. And, uh, you know, we feel that for other innovators coming into this space, it should be smoother. Well, I'm sure none of this comes as a shock to you. What were some of the things that you did as Deputy Secretary to try to break down some of these barriers to make it easier for DOD to work with some of these companies? Well, I think I just drafted off Secretary Ash Carter, who, after he left the Deputy Secretary slot, spent a year on the West Coast seeing firsthand the vibrant innovation that was going on uh, in Silicon Valley. And he came back intent on trying to make sure that the Department of Defense was able to tap into that innovation, primarily by removing the barriers that Amir talked about. He set up what was called the Defense Innovation Unit Experimental, which was a bridgehead in Silicon Valley, and designed to listen to these new startups and how hard it was to work with government and how could we make it easier. DIUX uh, um, was at the forefront of pursuing what was called OTA or other transactional authorities in which DIUX was able to get contracts completed in 60 days, which was unheard of at the time. We still haven't done nearly enough, but uh, Secretary Mattis kept DIUX, it's still going, and the new Undersecretary of Defense for Research and Engineering, Mike Griffin, comes from NASA, which has a culture of working with the commercial industry on national defense issues or uh, government issues. So I'm hopeful that this will just continue and it, uh, the Department of Defense will be seen over the next several years as someone that people would like to work with. Uh, and is easy to work with. You said you think we've done a lot, but we haven't done nearly enough. What other steps do you think DOD could take to tap into some of this innovation? Well, the first thing, and I will, I'll, I'd ask Amir because he works with the government and as a private company, he has it much more up close and personal than I did as the deputy secretary. But continuing to improve on new innovative ways to have contracting, whether it be other transactional authority or new authorities given to us by Congress. One of the things that we have to get over is in this period of time, we have to embrace failure. You learn through failure. And right now, if you fail one or two times, an entire program can be at risk, either because Congress says you're not performing in the way you should, or OSD has taken a heavy-handed approach. So in addition to new and uh, innovative ways to put 
things onto contract, uh, we have to tolerate failure. And the other thing is we have to understand IP and how it works in a world of algorithms. How will all that work out? How do we attract these young companies uh, that don't want to lose their IP or uh, you know, do not want to be controlled uh, in the way that they employ their IP? Amir, being on the business side of this, are there things that you would like to see DoD change and improve in terms of um, its practices and its ability for companies like yours to work with DoD? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, in addition to the things that I talked about, uh, the other aspect sort of is a fair shot. Uh, For a lot of the, uh, you know, proposals that one ends up uh, responding to a lot of the RFPs, it's not quite clear sometimes that you have the opportunity to get in front of the program manager. You know, some of the participants do, others don't. My view is that there's probably some rationalization there that can be done. Maybe there can be the use of digital technology. If the issue is the program manager doesn't have the time to meet with all the applicants, perhaps there can be a VTC. Perhaps there can be other ways of ensuring that there is equal access to this individual that's so critical in making the decision. Uh, For a lot of these, uh, currently it looks like you got a requirement, you pulled that down from one of the federal websites, you read through the requirement to the best of your abilities, and you think you have a great solution to it. You propose a solution, you provide experience, and, and you list what experience you've had in this area. And sometimes you get a response which seems like the program manager didn't get it, that they didn't understand the response. And in those situations, it's easy to have a conversation and to say, well, let me explain this to you. And by the way, other government departments do this. For example, you know, I've filed 50 patents in my career. And for most of those patents, the PTO will come back and provide what's called an office action, which is that you filed the patent, you made these claims, but I went back in the literature and I saw this and I saw that. And now you prove to me that you are unique, even though I found those other things in the literature. So it's not the fact that their view or their judgment or their pushback is the problem. The fact of the matter is that we need to create avenues for submitters of these responses to be able to have equal access to the program manager who is a critical decider, just like the USPTO does with their patent folks. Let's talk about China. The US does not have a monopoly on artificial intelligence. Some of the leading companies in the world are Chinese companies like Tencent, Baidu, and Alibaba. An issue that comes up repeatedly in this space is where do U.S. companies and where does the United States as a whole stack up against China in terms of competitiveness? We saw in the fall at our AI summit, Eric Schmidt weighed in on this. Amir, of course, you were also there and Bob had a role. What is each of your take on how the U.S. is right now um, technologically in terms of competing with China? Well, the first thing I'd say is that China has listed AI and autonomy as a national priority. They have a national plan. And essentially what the plan says is by 2020, we want to catch the Americans in this technology. By 2025, we want to surpass the Americans. And by 2030, we would like to be the world leader in these technologies. Now, there's a lot of debate right now over whether or not the Chinese will catch the United States by 2020. In my view, we should approach this as a competition. And I think we should assume that the Chinese and the Americans right now are on an equal playing field. We might be ahead in advanced computing. The Chinese might be ahead in coding, whatever it might be. 
This is a very, very robust competition and one that the United States requires a national response. Yeah, in my view, I mean, again, fundamentally, these two countries have a different environment and different background. And therefore, you know, the technology has evolved quite differently in both places. I think China, uh, because of the kinds of uh, regulations that they have and don't have, have some fundamental advantages in being able to capture data to a great extent. For example, their networks where they've deployed over 5 million cameras and being able to collect information that now makes the next version of that network even richer. Doing something like that in the United States would be very problematic. So there are some areas where they have some benefits. We talked earlier about UAV technology, but again, they've been able to export UAVs and the operations of those UAVs, both in terms of the vision feeds, the ISR feeds, as well as the practical knowledge of operating a system like that in, you know, essentially in a conflict zone, gives you a lot of feedback. So those are two examples I would cite. Now, is it going to be five years or is it going to be 10 years? My view is that if things continue the way that they are, I think five years is quite realistic. In five years, China should be able to match or surpass U.S. AI capability broadly. This is not all possible futures. This is one possible likely future unless we change what we're doing now. And I feel that a greater level of government investment, a greater level of impetus you know, you and I were talking earlier, Paul, and I was mentioning to you that during the space race in the mid 60s, four and a half percent of the U.S. budget was allocated to the space race, to NASA. Now, I'm not suggesting that that's what we need to do today because technology has become cheaper. We can do a lot more with a lot less. But we at least have the Chinese to look at. And the report that Secretary Work was talking about, that really comes with a $150 billion commitment over this period of time. So I think we do require the capital. We do need to figure out, okay, if it's personal surveillance data sets that aren't our forte, what data sets are our forte? And to encourage as much AI ecosystem innovation, even perhaps by contributing to funds that are specifically targeting investment in early stage AI companies. There's a whole host of things that can be done in concert with universities, uh, subsidizing PhDs in AI as an example. Well, you made a great point, Amir, about proliferation, that it's not just about China, but that China and others will share this technology. It will proliferate to others. And they may have very different views on proliferation. You mentioned armed drones. Um, we have seen this already uh, with armed drone proliferation, where the U.S. has been very hesitant to transfer them abroad, even to very close allies. And yet China has been selling armed drones to others. And in fact, 90% of armed drone proliferation comes from China. Um, and so we don't have a lock on uh, in that technology. We don't have a lock on AI. And others certainly get a vote. And a quick plug, uh, viewers can check out some of our research on drone proliferation online at drones.cnas.org. Let's talk about what do we do? How does the U.S. stay ahead in this space? How big of a scale of effort are we talking about that's needed? Amir, you mentioned the levels of spending that we saw during the space race. Bob, you've talked about the idea of an AI agency. Tell me more about that. Well, our response to the challenge of space the Sputnik moment that everyone talks about. Uh, the president himself said, uh, made some key and fundamental decisions. One, he said that we're not going to approach this as a strictly military problem. 
We're going to have a civilian agency, the National Aerospace Agency, and then we will have a military program. And they will coordinate on technology development, but there will be a civil side and a military side. And then the military side was further bifurcated between what we've referred to today as white space, things like weather satellites, communication satellites, navigation satellites, and then black space or classified space, national technical means, which would uh, essentially uh, electro-optical systems, et cetera. Uh, at the same time, we had a new schedule. It was called Schedule D at the time, and it was designed to attract young men and women to become physicists, become engineers, to become systems analysts. And I believe we need a similar national response. I think a national AI agency would focus primarily on how we should employ government R&D capital in the private sector space and the government space to make sure that we have all of our bases covered in AI. It would also spend a lot of time trying to break down the barriers that Amir talked about. How do we make this easier for commercial companies to work with the government in these areas? I think we should consider things like a national uh, AI reserve officer training corps, where we tell young men and women, you can go to any college you want, as long as you get a degree and have good standing in computer, uh, advanced computing, machine learning, big data analytics, uh, visualization of data, you'll get a free ride. And at the end, you can join Google, you can join Spark Cognition, you can join Amazon, but two days out of the month, you're going to go to a military organization and you're going to say, how can AI help you in improve your operations? And 14 months out of the year, you'll go to a major exercise, you'll observe, and you'll say, hey, this is how we might be able to use AI to improve the technologies. It might be a schedule AI where we bring people in, but this has to be a national response. The, we have to recognize that the Chinese national plan is a direct challenge. You know, they have a goal not only to surpass America in AI technologies, but to dominate the world in these technologies. And that is a challenge that I think we have to take seriously. But Bob, you made a comparison to Sputnik, but we haven't had a Sputnik moment on AI here in the United States. China had a Sputnik moment with AlphaGo that was a, a wake-up call to folks in China about the, the abilities of this technology, but we haven't yet seen that here in the U.S., I agree. Um, I think it's been a failure of leadership. Uh, I think the Sputnik moment to me is the Chinese national plan. It is quite stark. It says, look, uh, we're going to approach this in the terms of civil military fusion. Uh, we believe that AI will increase our economic output by at least 26%. We think it will allow us to compete with America uh, or maybe surpass America in the military realm. That to me is the Sputnik moment. Unfortunately, there's not a satellite that's circling the world that uh, has an AI uh, uh, algorithm that is doing something that people say, oh my goodness, uh, we better respond. Uh, we see this uh, right now, it's right in front of our face. Uh, so I think we have to respond. Are we at the point with um, in the US defense space where we've become so accustomed to American military technological superiority that we take it for granted, that it's just inconceivable to a wide swath of, of folks in the defense sector that the U.S. might even already be behind? 
Well, I feel right now pretty strongly, uh, especially even more so after I came out of government, this is what it feels like being offset by a very, very serious competitor. I think in 1996, uh, when the United States sent two carrier battle groups uh, or, you know, through the Taiwan Straits and the Chinese were unable to track them and unable to do anything about them, uh, they said we and they studied how the United States operated in Desert Storm and again uh, in Bosnia and Kosovo and uh, over Serbia. Uh, later, a couple of years later, they said, we have got to offset the United States. Uh, we can't compete with them right away. So that we're going to go after things like hypersonic weapons, electromagnetic railguns, directed energy, AI and autonomy. And they put all of their effort into these things. If they are not ahead, they are close on our heels. And so to me, this is a very serious national security problem that we have to address. Amir, we've talked about the importance of human capital in ensuring U.S. competitiveness in AI. I want to talk about immigration. This is a place where the U.S. for decades has had a system where we bring in the best and the brightest from abroad. We educate them in the American university system and then uh, keep many of them here to immigrate to the United States and to, to join our industry and enhance American competitiveness. And immigrants are a huge fraction of U.S. entrepreneurs and involved in startups. Of course, you're one of these success stories. I wonder if you can tell a little bit about, tell us about that, about your story, uh, and then your thoughts on what the U.S. needs to do to continue that kind of opportunities uh, going forward. Well, absolutely. So in my case, um, you know, I actually... Uh, went to college. I'm originally from Lahore, Pakistan, and I went to college very early at the age of 15 um, and, and in Lahore. And I got my first bachelor's in computer science by the time I was 17. I was looking at research programs all over, and I started writing to a number of universities, not because of who the universities were, but because of the specific work that certain specific people were doing there. And they were all over the world. So, for example, Professor Niklas Wirth, who was working on Modula, who was the inventor of Pascal, and he very kindly wrote me back. Uh, Professor Nicholas Negroponte uh, at MIT Media Lab, he very kindly wrote me back. And then also a lab at UT Austin, called the Distributed Multimedia Computation Lab, which was doing some very interesting work that to me was interesting. So I came to the U.S. for two reasons. One was that the work being done here was fantastic and fascinating to me. I came to the U.S. because I was in love with an idea that took root in the U.S., number one. And number two, I came to the U.S. because all of my associations with the U.S. as a child and as a teenager were incredibly positive. We were joking around earlier, popular mechanics and popular science. And, you know, I used to look forward to those boy mechanics and then find projects that I could actually do and then do them uh, or even Archie comics. It was really positive. And these things had a tremendously positive impact on people all over the world. Um, I came across the research of Ed Fredkin, which was a big driver in my life. He asked the question, is the universe a computer? I read that article for the first time in a magazine called Dialogue that was distributed by the United States Information Service in Lahore when I was 12 years old. So these things matter. 
Now, the question, of course, is that we can all see that that view of the United States globally is changing. And empirically, one can see that change because you find more and more students going to China, fewer coming to the United States. There are now stories of you know problems and abuse, and there's this issue of racism very publicly. And I'm not here to say whether it's increased numerically or decreased numerically. All I'm saying is it's in the media a lot more. And that creates a sense of insecurity for people that are coming in from the outside. At the same time, the world is also developing. America post-World War II wasn't really competing with anyone. Europe was destroyed. Much of the rest of the world was undeveloped. But now that picture no longer holds true. So we really have to compete hard now because we're competing with real competitors. And we have to compete again in the way that we do best, which is to show the world ideas and those who fall in love with those ideas will find no place other than America to come to, to pursue those to fruition, to implement them, to reduce them to practice, to think about them, and then to create America into a space where people of all ilks and colors and backgrounds, this is the original American dream, to simply preserve that. If we do that, how many other countries can match us? Because the world's best talent will flow here, will flow here automatically. But the restoration of how the world sees us, back to the Archie comics and the boy mechanics, that's something that's going to take some doing. So back to your original question, Paul, you know, there is no God-given American right to dominate any particular competition. We have advantages and we have disadvantages. In this particular competition, we have enormous advantages if we play them right. So right now, I think what we have to do is look at the technology competition that we're facing and say, look, is this really the time for us to be thinking about expanding our our armed forces in a big way? Or should we be going after these technologies in a very systematic, deliberate way with the investments needed to make sure that we can compete in them? Uh, I think that's absolutely necessary to make sure that in the future, our technological superiority will be maintained. Well, thank you both. That's a lot to think about, about ways to ensure U.S. competitiveness. Thanks for your insights, and uh, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Paul. Thank you, Paul.